Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in San Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Emily St. John Mandel is the author of Sea of Tranquility, a novel which is now available in paperback. Her five previous novels include The Glass Hotel, which has been translated into 25 languages, and Station Eleven, which was a finalist for a National Book Award and the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction, and was the basis of a limited series on HBO Max. It has been translated into 37 languages. She lives in New York City and Los Angeles. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Sea of Tranquility, New York Times bestseller, now in paperback, and all of your work. So exciting. Well, thank you so much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on your show. Thanks. Tell listeners a little bit, for those who haven't read your latest book, tell them what they can expect to find and how all of your books are, are linked and sort of of a piece. Uh, sure, absolutely. So all of my books stand completely alone. You definitely don't have to have read one to understand another. And you could read them in any order. 
But I do like to connect books with characters who appear in more than one, mostly because it's fun, to be honest. <laughs> you know, it's like you, um, sometimes you just become attached to a particular character. And then it's kind of interesting to bring them back in a subsequent work and maybe just get a slightly different view of their lives. So, you know, um, with Station Eleven, Miranda was a major character. And in that book, we knew her as a graphic novelist. We know that she's a shipping executive, but we never see that side of her life. But that side of her life was interesting to me. So that's a big part of why I brought her back in The Glass Hotel, where we know her as a shipping executive, but not a graphic artist. So yeah, lots of character overlap. In Sea of Tranquility, um, it is, it's such a reasonable question, like asking me to summarize the book. It is so hard. I've been struggling with this for like two years now. I'm sorry. I shouldn't. It's just, no, no, no. It's uh, absolutely. No, it's just like, it's. It's kind of a strange book because I wrote it in 2020 in New York City is really the the truth of the Got matter. It. Okay. If, if the book is a little weird, it was because we were all a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you know, it is a book about a time traveling detective who is investigating an anomaly, which seems to point to the idea that all of our world is a simulation. Um, it's also historical fiction. We begin in 1912 on Vancouver Island where a young immigrant from London sees something in the woods that he absolutely cannot explain. And we follow that strange anomaly through time. Our next stop is February 2020 in New York. The pandemic's about to arrive. And we re-encounter some characters from the Glass Hotel. Then we move forward to a somewhat surreal book tour in the year 2301. <laughs> And uh, just to get it out of the way, people actually did say those things to me on tour. That's fairly autobiographical. Oh, my gosh. Um, and finally, we arrive in 2401 on a moon colony where our time-traveling detective actually lives. So it's kind of a wild book. It's about time. It's about our obligations to one another. It's literary fiction. It's also science fiction. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a really fun thing to write during a very not fun year. So do, when you're going through hard times like the pandemic and and all of that, and you're you, a lot of authors have trouble writing, like and particularly during that time, were you able to just shut off the world? And can you do that regularly? Is that like a superpower of yours to like turn off and then turn inward and create and escape that way? I mean, it's a superpower now, but I feel like I won that superpower in March 2020, where yeah, the first three weeks or so of the pandemic, I did find it really hard to work. Just the uh, the constant ambulance sirens and the dread. And, you know, I think a lot of your listeners will relate to this. I have a young child and just the terror at that time when we just didn't know that much about COVID-19 and how it might affect children. And that terrible feeling of feeling like you can't keep your child safe, you know, it keeps you up at night in that kind of circumstance. So yeah, it was very hard to work for a while. But the thing with writing a novel for me is that there's a long period of time before anybody else sees it when it feels like something akin to a secret garden. Mm. It's like this private world, which I can go into and nobody else can come in and I have absolute control. And that was so appealing to me in the early days of the pandemic. So after about three weeks of just kind of trying to write and not writing and reading instead, I, I started working on Sea of Tranquility. And I feel like it kind of saved my sanity during that year. Wow. You know, it's funny because those three weeks were so long 
and terrifying. But when I hear you say, oh, I didn't write for three weeks, it's like, okay, well, whatever. That's like vacation. <laughs> I know, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. It was like such a big deal. And felt so, it felt like three years in those three weeks, but. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. It was a long three weeks. It was a long <laughs> it was, three weeks. It was, it was not a, yeah, it was not a 2023 three weeks. It was right. whole society collapse, like that kind yes. of three weeks. <laughs> yes, exactly. Very unique. And how old is your child now? Uh, she's seven now. Aww. Yeah, she had, uh, she just turned four when the pandemic happened. I have um, an eight and a nine-year-old now and also oh, twins wow. who are okay. 15. Okay. Um, yeah, my little guy nice. has like his preschool graduation on Zoom and <laughs> like in the early oh, days. God, Zoom preschool was bleak, wasn't it? Was it? So I just awful. opted out after a week. It was oh like, God. absolutely not. I did, um, I did like this Instagram live series with authors, like my own way of escaping the pandemic, by the way, mm-hmm. of like, just like, this is what I'm going to do. And my husband was helping my little guy who I guess was, yeah, I mean, he was five and he was on Zoom and the teacher asked him a question and my son just like took the laptop and closed it. <laughs> <laughs> and like, haven't we all wanted to do that in Zoom meetings where it's just like, you know what? I'm just going to opt yeah. out of this timeline. Yeah. <laughs> so my husband just like sat there laughing. I'm like, what did you do? Did you get him back on Zoom? And he's like, no. <laughs> that was my feeling. Yeah. Um, yeah. We just skipped the pre-K year. It was like, you know what? I'm, I'm not making you do this on Zoom. That's yeah. insane. It was, uh, it was a total waste. But um, I, I mean, God bless the teachers who tried, you know. But anyway. yeah, impossible um, job. Wait, Emily, explain how you became like an how you became an author and how like did you always know and how did this go from being a dream to reality and and all of that? Yeah, sure. I took kind of a weird circuitous route. And if I, you know, maybe one thing I like I would like people to take away from hearing this is that there's no one route to this. I I'm just going to say at the outset, I have zero formal training as a writer. Um, I've never taken a writing workshop or anything like that. The way I came to it is I was homeschooled as a kid. And the uh, the reason for that is just my parents were kind of hippies and like the sort of counterculture thing to do when I was a little kid was homeschool your children. So they tried that as an experiment for kindergarten. The experiment somehow extended until the 10th grade. <laughs> and, and there was a period of time when I was about eight or nine years old when one of the requirements of the curriculum that my mom came up with was that I had to write something every day. And I'm so grateful for that because it got me into the habit of writing at a really early age. And it was just something that I really loved. So I just kept doing it even when I didn't have to anymore. I remember when I was like 10 or 11, working every day on this epic fantasy novel on scrap paper. You know, I was just, um, yeah, I was just obsessed with telling that story. And it was something that that I just really, really love to do. So yeah, I just kept going with it. My first dream was to be a dancer. I started studying ballet when I was six. And by the time I was 13 or 14, I was dancing six days a week. I went to school for dance, a, a conservatory program in Toronto for contemporary dance. And I just kind of fell out of love with it. There was a strange moment when I was, I think, 21, when... I just kind of realized, you know what? I don't think I even like this anymore. Like this, this isn't fun. It's a chore, not a joy. And that was a little scary because on the one hand, I had no high school diploma because I hadn't quite bothered to finish 12th grade math. On the other hand, I had a mountain of student loan debt, which is like a really weird combination. (laughs) You know, I'd gone to this uh, conservatory program where the path to get in was an audition. So, you know, it never occurred to me to go back to college. I just felt like 
financially that door was closed. And I just had to figure out what to do next. So I thought, well, maybe I could take the writing more seriously. You know, I've been writing as a hobby for my entire life. For, that's what it felt like to me. So I just started to take it more seriously and tried to do it every day and started working on what eventually became my first novel, Last Night in Montreal. Wow. Your parents must take a lot of credit for this then. I mean, it was her, your mom's assignments that really, I mean, she <laughs> I, deserves, I hope my mom takes the credit. Right? Every dedication. Definitely. Yeah. Be, yeah. yeah. It should be. Yeah. <laughs> And when you started writing with no training, did you ever doubt yourself or did you feel good about it? Like, what was that? What was that like? Oh, I doubt myself with every book. Honestly. <laughs> yeah. The first book in, in particular, it took four years to write last night in Montreal, in part because I wasn't taking myself seriously enough. I would do things like put the book down for two months while I was distracted by my day job, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I had enormous doubt. I always, I shouldn't say always, I very often had the feeling like I was way out beyond the limits of my talent and ability and that I wasn't sure if I could pull this off. And what I've found since then is that I always have those moments with every book I write. But once you've written one book, it gets easier because then you know you can write a book. That was my experience with it. Interesting. I feel like that would come as a surprise to listeners that despite success and and acclaim and all of that, that there's still those lingering feelings. Maybe, yeah. But but maybe that's how we should be writing. You know, like I have had the thought that, you know, although a given process might not be particularly comfortable, I kind of like the idea that we should be pushing ourselves, that maybe the feeling of being at the edge of your talent and ability, that maybe that's not a bad place to be artistically. Very true. Wow. And then in books like Sea of Tranquility, you referenced that some of it took place a long time ago and you it's very visual and all the details and the boat and walking through the you know the the scenery that you have in Canada and all all of the specifics feel very real. I mean, you, you set a scene, you set all the the trappings of of imagination, but it's rooted in reality at least place and time and all of that. So in terms of how much research that you do that goes into books, like where does that come from? And how do you know when to cut it off? And how do you decide right. even where to take your characters? Uh, yeah, I, I feel like with research, it's kind of a balancing act because on the one hand, you don't want pages and pages of exposition about you know the mechanics of, I don't know, how you make buttons in the 1880s or like whatever thing is relevant to what you're writing, especially with historical fiction. On the other hand, you really want to get it right. So, yeah. So the historical fiction sections of Sea of Tranquility, set in 1912 and then 1918, those were the sections that took the most research. I based that that main character in that time period, Edwin, on a great grandfather of mine, um, but but very loosely based on him. So you know, I was making up almost everything and spent a lot of time researching things like the streetcar line in Halifax in 1912, you know, just to try to, to try to make it make sense, to try to at least get to a standard where nobody was going to trip over it. Like, wait, the streetcar line didn't go that far east in the, you know, 1912. What are you talking about? It's the moment you want to avoid. So yeah, historical fiction takes the most research. The contemporary world, I feel like it really depends on what you're writing. And you know, I think like, like a lot of people, I just have a lot of interests. 
So sometimes I'll read an article in the New Yorker or the Atlantic or whatever, you know, some fascinating long form thing. And it won't feel at the time like research. It'll just feel like an interesting thing that I'm reading about. But then I'll find myself thinking about it and end up working it into a book. So yeah, some of the research is kind of accidental in that way. But once you're committed to one of those things appearing in a book, like container shipping, for example, um, then you, then you do have to go back and make sure you know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, yeah. And, you know, I have to say, like, there is something very liberating about science fiction from a research perspective, because you really can just make it up. And that's pretty fun. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What would you like the world to look like in 2040? Or wherever you go, however fast yeah. forward you want to go. Like what, what would you change... And how do you balance any semblance of reality with fast forwarding of time? What would I like the world to look like? I would like us to be less in denial about the inevitability of pandemics and more able to face reality when they happen. That, that would be nice. It would be nice if, if we'd started to think about how to get off this planet where, you know, on the one hand, this is our planet and uh, we have to make it work. On the other hand, as they point out in Sea of Tranquility, no star burns forever. You know, so it, it would be a good idea for the continuation of the species to start to, to consider outward moves. I don't know. I just, I hope the world's less chaotic. <laughs> I don't know that it will be. <laughs> and w which of these characters, if any, are you can taking with you on your next book? And what is your next book? Um, my next book, I'm only about halfway through the first draft. So even I don't really know what the plot is, but <laughs> what I, what I can tell you about it is that the protagonist in the next book is the villain from my second book, The Singer's Gun. And I have to say, it's been really fun to go back and think about that character again, who I hadn't thought about in years. And, you know, assuming based on the events of The Singer's Gun, that probably she's done significant prison time. And what does that do to her character? 
So yeah, that's been a fun project. Wow. I love this idea of of just continuation of characters and having somebody pop into another book. And I always used to love in sitcoms and like the Jeffersons would end up in, well, you, you grew up in Canada, right? You grew up, maybe yeah, yeah, I did. But anyway, when like shows would cross on NBC and anyway, mm-hmm. never mind. But I love that. I love that. No, I, I remember those days when like love, Angel yeah. would show up and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Like yeah, I was there for that. All of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like of a different era, I guess. But um, when you're writing a book, do you read other books in the genre? Do you stop reading? Like, what are you reading now? And how do you really approach your time when you're when you're deep in a book? Like you're halfway through your first draft. So what does that look like? You're still doing some publicity. Like how do you manage your time and your focus? Um, it's such a weird time. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm doing publicity for Sea of Tranquility. And I'm also in a writer's room. It's not an adaptation for one of my works. It's um, It's a totally different show. Yeah, so I'm working in TV and I'm doing this promotional stuff and trying to get other projects off the ground and writing a new book. And I have a seven-year-old. So like it's busy is really really where I'm going with this. Yeah. I just try to, in moments like this, where there's just a lot going on, you know, I'm like everybody, I'm just trying to do all the important things. It's like triage all day. You know, you don't quite catch up by bedtime. You try again the next day. In calmer times when I'm not traveling quite so much and not doing promotional work for a new book, then it is a little bit more structured and stable. You know, I'll drop my kid off at school. I'll work for a while. She's at her dad's place 50% of the time. So often I do have more time than I used to. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's funny. I don't know that my working life is that different from most other parents. You know, that constant juggling act. I know. I feel like I could not get, not that I'm recommending divorce, but I don't think I could get anything that I get done done if I didn't have the time when the kids go to their yeah. dad's house. The, there is, is a silver lining, which we don't yeah. talk about enough. And I'm happy. I know. <laughs> there yeah, silver, yeah it helps. I know. The other day on, they were here in spring break. I was just like, I just, if this was like this forever, I'd, I wouldn't even be able to finish reading this one book. I couldn't even get to one book the whole week. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's like you miss them. You miss them desperately when they're not with you, but you are able to get work done. So there's, yeah, there's something to them. It's true. It was a lot harder. I feel like. I've gotten used to the time when I'm not with them, but in the beginning it was Mm -hmm. excruciating. I don't know about you. Yeah. Yeah. It's difficult. Yeah. And so tell me about the adaptations. What's going on with that? Oh, that's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, uh, so let me back up a little bit. So the station 11 adaptation came out, it's December, 2021 on HBO max. Yes. I, I didn't, you know, I, I wrote the source novel, obviously, but I didn't have any input into scripts or I never visited the set because of COVID. So I wasn't particularly involved in the day-to-day of that project, but I love that project. I was so impressed by that adaptation. So then I had the opportunity a little over a year ago to work on adaptations of The Glass Hotel and Sea of Tranquility with that same creative team, which was hugely exciting to me. So me and Patrick Somerville, the creator of the TV series and other Station Eleven writers, we had, we had a, I think it was a 10-week mini room, which for anybody who's not in the TV industry, that's like a really short writer's room. And I think our setup was pretty typical. We had 10 weeks to figure out the arc of the show and write three scripts. And then we pitched it to HBO Max. And it's, it's a really unstable time in the entertainment industry. There's um, just a lot of kind of high-level movement, uh, corporate mergers and acquisitions and consolidation happening. 
So, you know, a certain degree of chaos is kind of industry-wide, and that has slowed down decisions. So we're still waiting. <laughs> I'm waiting to find out if HBO Max will greenlight the Glass Hotel. And based on that decision, we'll know what's going on with Sea of Tranquility. So it's just been this limbo for a while. Should find out in the next couple of weeks, fingers crossed. Oh my gosh. My, my yeah. husband's a producer and I'm like, it's like a miracle when anything gets made. I feel like oh, so it feels many like things it, right? have to align the timing, the cast, the crew. It's just like amazing. I mean, how could they not just jump on the book? Do you, like, why right? wouldn't they yeah. just take it? It should, it's like I, a I no brainer. Yeah. yeah. If you know anybody at HBO Max, feel free to give them a call. <laughs> I don't, I don't, but I would like to. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, that's exciting. And what was it like sort of watching your your hard work and your imagination be on the screen the first time? It was extraordinary, honestly. It, I, I got to see almost finished cuts of the episodes a few weeks before the before the premiere aired. And so, you know, I wasn't that far ahead of anybody else. I didn't see the final, final version uh, with, you know, the VFX added and everything until they were airing on HBO Max. Oh my gosh. It was the most incredible time. Like for every week, uh, getting to sit down and watch another two episodes of Station Eleven. I really admired the way the adaptation stayed true to the spirit of the book, even though the plot was completely different. I, I really, yeah, I really appreciated that. I felt like like the project was in really good hands and they respected the source material. Yeah. And I love what they did with it. I really like their changes. So yeah, it was just, it was really pretty incredible. And when you're working on a book like with your editors and all of that, like, how do you feel when edits come back in? Like, what is the, pro- what is the editing process like? Like, what is the least favorite part, the easiest part for you? Cover design, um, like what is that whole publication thing highlights lowlights all of that <laughs> if you can call it yeah like it definitely gets easier with time okay you know you definitely get a thicker skin uh by your sixth novel when you had with your first yeah. <laughs> um my least favorite part of the editorial process is the initial notes where you know i have three editors it's pretty intense uh one each for the us uk and canada so that is an epic editorial email. I, I remember printing out the first one for the Glass Hotel and it was nine pages. Oh, no. <laughs> so I just had like nine pages, by the way, and like nine point text. So <laughs> yeah, just like all single these pages. Spaced. Yeah, exactly. Single spaced. It was pretty epic. In terms of how rough it is, it depends on the book. Sea of Tranquility is a relatively short novel. I knew what the structure of the book was going to be going in. It's kind of an homage to David Mitchell's novel, Cloud Atlas, in that kind of symmetrical march forward and then backward in time. The Glass Hotel, the book that preceded it, took me five years to write. It was really, really difficult to figure out what that book was. I feel like I spent a lot of time trying to find the book. Like, is this a ghost story? Is it a book about a white-collar crime? All of the above? You know, it was just, it was hard to find it. And um, what complicated things a little bit is that I sold it as a partial manuscript, which I don't know if I'd do that again. And the, the only reason I did it was because I think Trump had recently been elected. And I thought, well, obviously the economy is about to collapse because that man is chaos. So I uh, I was like, I'm just going to get a book deal in under the wire before it all falls down. <laughs> so yeah, I sold it as a partial, which meant that my editors had not read even a first draft when they bought it. Those editorial notes were really hard. 
it, the messaging was kind of like, we love this. Could you please change the plot, the character, the structure, the language? <laughs> Everything. So, <laughs> yes, you know, I uh, I may have spent a couple of days crying in my office. And, oh. you know, I did it. I got to work and I rewrote the book. And then I did that again two times. <laughs> and, you know, so sometimes it is really hard. But I have brilliant editors. And there's never been a time where I felt like they were wrong. You know, they they weigh in. They always have these incredibly intelligent suggestions. And we're all on the same team. We're all trying to make the book better. So, yeah, I, I've been really fortunate uh, in that sense. I I just haven't had that much friction in the editing process because, you know, there might be an initial shock of, oh, my God, you want me to do what? But then a day or two later, I always find myself coming back to, you know what? She's actually right. I, I actually do need to do that to make it a better book. I love that. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? Yeah, I do. This first piece of advice is actually not original. It's something I heard Neil Gaiman say. And he's a writer I really respect. And I think this advice is solid. His advice is finish what you start. And when I think about that, I think what he might have been getting at is it's really easy to start something. You know, you can write a dazzling first sentence. But then maybe you get a little bit bored. The plot doesn't really work. You're not sure your characters really make sense. So you set it aside and you start something else. And I think his point was that it's by working through those moments that you become a better writer. So I like to borrow that advice and spread it around. I think also this is a little bit more publishing advice than writing advice, which is very different. But I think you shouldn't try to predict the market or you shouldn't try to write for the market. Because what's popular and selling now is not going to be the same thing that's popular in three years or whenever your novel's done. I think, I think a better approach is to try to make the market, you know, so write the book that you're really passionate about because writing a book is really hard. And if it's boring for you, it's going to be boring for your readers. So write the thing that interests you and then try to find a home for it. And then I, I think maybe the last thing I'd say in terms of publishing advice, is don't assume that the publishing world is closed to you. I think there's this idea that, that you have to be from a particular background, like you have to have gone to the right school or know the right people or go to the right parties, and only then will you gain entree into the publishing world. And I have to say, like, none of those things were true for me. I literally don't have a high school diploma. <laughs> so, um, you know, and I knew nobody going in. I think it's easy to forget that the publishing world is full of people whose job is to find good new work. I love that. So inspiring and amazing. Emily, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you for chatting with me today and coming on. Do you have any great books or movies or shows for seven-year-olds or <laughs> anything I should know? Favorite snacks? Any any good tips? You know what? Um, my daughter's been obsessed with the Phoebe and her unicorn graphic novels oh, yeah. lately. They're yep. really fun. So yeah, I would recommend those. Those are fun. We we had a fan. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time and take care. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. 
Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.